Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of Patterson in Pursuit. I am your host, Steve Patterson, and today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, economics. My wife and I just got back from a great trip to Canada, but this interview is coming to you from the great state of Virginia. I'm talking today with Professor Donald Boudreau, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's the former president of the Foundation for Economic Education, which is an organization I used to work at a few years ago. In the economics world, there's kind of a sad reality that it seems like more and more professional economists and economic commentators are mistaken about the very basic concepts in economics. And if you've been following my work for a little while, you know I am all about the basics. If you get the basics wrong, it really doesn't matter how advanced your analysis is, you're going to be foundationally mistaken. Which is why I'm excited to talk with Dr. Boudreaux, because he also focuses on the basics. Dr. Boudreaux is one of the clearest writers and thinkers on economic topics. If you follow his work, you'll notice that he engages with the mainstream political and economic commentators that influence the general public, and he's excellent in correcting their errors. He's written a book called Globalization and has a blog with fellow economist Russ Roberts entitled Cafe Hayek. If you guys haven't checked it out, go to cafehayek.com. It's a fantastic website. There is a lot of very clear economic writing from Dr. Boudreaux. In this interview, we talk about several things, but probably most importantly, the three basic starting concepts in economics. There are many basic concepts, but he has chosen three which I think are very foundational. And if you don't understand them, there is no possible way to understand how the world works, in my opinion. So if you're interested in what we're talking about, check out the show notes page today. It's steve-patterson.com 19. And I'll have a link to some more economics resources if you guys are interested in mastering the basics. Enjoy. So first of all, thank you very much for sitting down and speaking with me, Professor Boudreau. My pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work because you focus a lot on the basics basic foundational concepts in economics, which it seems like a lot of people, both in academia, in, uh, in like the media, and the general public, they seem to overlook the basics. Can you explain just a little bit maybe the importance of understanding the foundation, the foundational concepts in economics, and perhaps just what those basic concepts are? You know, like you have comparative advantage, you have to understand that concept and so on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to off the top of my head, pretend to give a, a full and complete list of, of all the basics. I, I, I might miss some. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but basically, uh, the basics of economics are we live in a world of scarcity, which means that if you want more of something, you, have to, some, you or someone else has to give up something else to get that greater amount. Uh, there are unintended consequences to nearly all acts. They can be beneficial unintended consequences or Ill, Ill, unintended consequences, um, and uh, uh, and and supply and demand. I mean, these are the you know we could go into more detail about other basics that are I think maybe a little bit less basic. But but uh, scarcity, supply and demand, and unintended consequences. These are pretty foundational. A lot of the what I regard to be the mistakes in public policy and errors in public policy discussion uh, stem from errors no more complex than a failure to recognize these basics, uh, a failure to understand that we live in a world of scarcity. You can't create prosperity out of nothing. Um, A failure to understand that 
there are consequences beyond those that are initially seen. This is Bastiat's what is seen and what is not seen. Uh, and a failure to understand the basic um, principles of supply and demand, as those principles are taught in any decent economics course. Uh, unfortunately, I fear that, that supply and demand is, is taught less and less decently in basic economics courses today. I, I make this rather sour assessment uh, from some correspondence that I have with some of my fellow economists, the younger economists, not all by any means, but increasingly large numbers of them seem uh, not to understand supply and demand, and some of them actually seem to disdain the notion that supply and demand is, uh, is an important concept. And so uh, focusing on the basics um, is vital not only to help people better understand economics, but it's vital to help people clarify their understanding of, of the way the economy works and uh, of the consequences, the likely consequences of various public policy proposals. So let's talk about some specifics of the basics applied to the public policy proposals. Yeah. So let's take something always comes up, the minimum wage. <laughs> Can you explain how understanding supply and demand, understanding um, scarcity, mm -hmm. and understanding unintended consequences. Those basic, can you explain how you would analyze something like the minimum wage? There's no better real-world example than the minimum wage for showing the importance of these three of these three notions. I should say these three notions are all intertwined with each other. They're not, right. they're not hermetically sealed off from each other. They're connected. So um, supply, and supply and demand is the understanding that... Uh, uh, when the price of some good or service changes, the quantities that buyers of that good or service want to buy change, the quantities that suppliers of that good or service are willing to sell change, and they change in the opposite direction. If uh, the price of something goes up, then buyers want to buy less of it, and suppliers are willing to supply more of it. Mm -hmm. Seems pretty commonsensical. This, you know, it, it, this is a foundational principle of economics but you don't need to be a PhD economist. You don't even need to have had a principles of economics course to understand this reality. Supermarket managers understand this reality. When they can't sell all of the paper towels that they thought they could sell, they put them on sale because they understand that if you lower the price, that's a really reliable way of getting people to buy more of them. Um, and so when the price of, of unskilled labor rises, and the minimum wage applies only to unskilled workers, only about 4% of U.S. workers today make the federal minimum wage or less uh, so when, because they're low-skilled workers, so they don't get paid very much. When the price of unskilled labor is artificially raised by legislation, that means buyers of unskilled labor, employers, want to buy less of it. They want to hire fewer hours of it. Uh, but the willingness of people to work at those higher wages goes up. Well, when the Quantity supply goes up, and when the quantity demanded of that thing goes down, you get a surplus of that labor. A surplus of labor is called unemployment. Mm -hmm. That's the unintended consequence. Well, presumably it's unintended. The people, I think most of the supporters today probably are well-intentioned in the sense that they think that the minimum wage will, in fact, raise the incomes of low-skilled workers, uh, either at no cost to anyone or at the exclusive cost of, of employers. So here's where we get to the concept of scarcity. Or, uh, uh, em employers uh, do not have, uh, contrary to what Bernie Sanders' 
supporters may suppose, uh, do not have an unlimited uh, quantity of wealth in which they can uh, dig into to pay higher wages. So employers, especially because they are in fact self-interested, we might even say greedy, as enemies of capitalism like to call them, uh, precisely because they are like that, when the price that they have to pay for labor rises, uh, they understand that that means greater costs for them, so they undertake efforts to economize further on labor. They say, well, what, what, how, how can I continue to do these, have these tasks performed in a way that's less costly uh, than it would be if I just pay the higher wages and not react at all? So they can substitute into machinery, you know, fire workers. They can uh, uh, alter the kinds of workers they hire. Um, relatedly, most of the industries in which low-skilled workers work, they use a disproportionately high um, uh, uh, amounts of, of low-skilled workers. These are industries that are very competitive. The, the restaurant industry, the maid service industry, the lawn care industry, the, you know, the, the manual labor, all these industries use manual labor. These are highly competitive industries. You know, we can debate, well, should they be more competitive? I'm all in favor of getting, you know, reducing occupational licensing and, reduce, and reducing further barriers to business startups. I'm not saying the world is perfect, but I think it's just com completely uh, implausible to suppose that the industries that use unskilled workers are by and large monopolized, that these, that these employers are making... Uh, uh, consistently, year after year, unusually large profits. They're not. Uh, restaurants come and go, and they, they go out of business. Uh, maid services come and go. Lawn care services come and go. It's fairly easy to enter these industries. So these, these, in, these uh, firms in these industries, whether they be uh, 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 parts of big corporations or whether they be mom and pop operations, they're operating on pretty thin profit margins. So they can't. They, they cannot afford to simply raise the prices, as some minimum wage advocates will say. Well, they'll just raise their prices and then pass along the cost to consumers. Uh, they can't afford to do that uh, because they're operating within profit margins. And when, when they're operating within profit margins, uh, they uh, understand that when the cost of labor goes up, the best way to minimize the effect of that higher cost is to reduce the amounts of workers they use. Let me say finally, even if... Uh, all the prices, even if some bizarre scenario, which is barely imaginable, uh, occurs where the prices of, of all those goods produced in industries that use disproportionately large amounts of low-skilled workers, minimum wage workers, even if those, those prices all rose uh, uh, completely by enough to compensate employers for the higher cost, uh, well, that means the prices of these goods and services are going up. That means consumers are going to buy less of them. And so even if employers don't change the way they supply outputs, they'll be supplying fewer of those outputs mm -hmm. to the market. And so those employers will need fewer workers per unit of output. Uh, excuse me, fewer workers because they're producing less output. So just reflecting on the principles of economics, I, I, I don't see that there is any way that you can conclude that raising the minimum wage doesn't reduce the job prospects of some low-skilled workers. Now, I say reduce the job prospects because formally or more 
clearly what the proposition is. It's not, it's not strictly that it will eliminate jobs. I think that's the practical consequence. Um, but uh, it, it you know, reduces the number of people who are working. It could just, you know, their hours might be reduced. Mm -hmm. So you get the same number of people working, but each is working fewer hours. Either way, they have less income. Uh, and there's no reason to, to suppose that these people feel better off sacrificing those hours um, if that sacrifice means means less income. This is an example of a trade-off that is implied by the concept of scarcity. Uh, the, the employers can also uh, change the, the nature of each job. They can demand that workers work harder. Employers can be more strict in, 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 in their intolerance of employees uh, doing personal things on the job, like texting, making personal phone calls. They can be more strict in demanding that employees show up on time for work and not leave early for work. So there, 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 there are any number of specific, different, different specific kinds of adjustments employers can make to a higher minimum wage, but they all are attempts to economize on, further on labor because labor becomes artificially costly for them. I don't see how reflecting, how an understanding of basic economics allows you to escape that conclusion. Uh, there's one exception, and that is the claim that the, the labor market is monopsonized. Well, that's just a ridiculous claim. Um, the, 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 that requires that there be one buyer, at least in any one market, of low-skilled workers, just one. Uh, and, so, and you can show on a blackboard that there's only one buyer of low-skilled workers. Uh, uh, th that is a... Uh, that might lead to a minimum wage not reducing employment. Even then, the theory gets is not quite as clear as some people think. Uh, but apart from that one unrealistic exception, reflection in basic economics says, no, minimum wage is going to hurt some low-skill workers. Okay, so let's take this framework and apply it to something like uh, rent control. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so let's say, number one, we're talking about the kind of the fundamentals is the concept of scarcity and rent control, that not everybody can have a place to live wherever they want. There, are, there is a finite amount of apartments in, on different locations. That's just kind of a brute fact that we have to deal with, so people have to make trade-offs. Two, supply and demand is people, uh, depending on the price of these properties, are going to uh, change their decisions, both the people who want to uh, be in an apartment, the renters are going to make their decisions based on the price. If the price goes up, they'll, that will be dissuaded. The price goes down, they will be uh, enticed. Yeah. And the counter is the people who are renting out their apartments are, have the reverse. The higher they can get, the more they're willing to rent. The lower the price, the less they're willing to rent. Right. So then that, that kind of falls into the third one, which is unintended consequences. So correct me if I'm wrong, that if you were to have something like rent control, it said for the sake of poorer people in society, rents can't be above a certain point. Mm -hmm. What the unintended consequence of that is that you're going to have a shortage of available properties. Can you kind of explain specifically why that's the case? Give me the economics of that. So let me change the example just a little bit, then I'll get back to rent control. Uh, the reason economics appealed to me so deeply I remember the day I became an economist. It was January 17, 1977. I was a freshman in college. I wasn't interested in anything. I had no academic. All I cared about was football and girls and beer. And I sat in economics class, uh, and my late teacher, Michel Francois, 
uh, drew supply demand curves on the board. And I was barely paying attention. And she said, look what happens when government puts price controls on and you know, pushes the price below market clearing. Well, you get, a you get a shortage. When the price falls, buyers want to buy more than sellers are willing to sell. And I realized suddenly why uh, I grew up in the 1970s, why I spent so much time uh, waiting in gasoline lines. Mm. Uh, and all the other explanations that I'd heard, yeah, they kind of made sense to someone who doesn't know economics. Well, Exxon is keeping its tankers out in the Gulf of Mexico you know, to drive up the price. Uh, if you're 15 years old, well, okay, well, uh, uh, we're, this is a popular one. We're just running out of oil. I mean, we've been using it now for 100 years and <laughs> running out. Right? And, you know, that, that seemed plausible if you don't know any economics. Um, and when I saw supply and demand, I thought, I, I don't think I articulated it to myself at that moment in these words, but I thought, this, this explanation makes far more sense than any other explanation. I was amazed at the power of these four little lines on a chalkboard. Back then it was a chalkboard uh, to explain reality. Uh, so with rent control, you have this, it's the same issue. You, if, if the rents fall, if the rents are artificially pushed down by the state below market clearing, the willingness of people to rent rises, right? as we economists say, the quantity demanded of rental units goes up. The willingness of landlords and potential landlords to rent goes down. You get, you get a lower return on your rental units. So you create a housing, you create a shortage of rental housing. And that's manifested in, in long waiting lines. Now, unlike with gasoline, people don't literally stand in line to wait. That's physically impossible to do. You'd, you'd die. So the waiting lines are in the form of you put, get your name on a list and you hope that this list opens up at, at, at some point. Um, and, you know, so we, rent control is much studied, like minimum wage. Uh, New York, especially New York City, uh, San Francisco also, these are two places in the United States that have rent control and where rent control is seriously enforced. There are a lot of jurisdictions that have rent control, but it's really kind of a dead letter or it's not enforced that much and, or the, or the rent, con rent controls are so high they don't, they're not effective, they don't take effect. But we know a lot from looking, at the, uh, from looking at the experience of New York and San Francisco and that record is pretty darn clear that the predictions of basic economics play out there. There's a shortage of rental housing in New York. Um, we, we know that in the 1960s when the New York City Rent Control Board, a lot of this depends upon the actual details of how they implement, mm -hmm. the, which is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, but in the 1960s when the New York City Rent Control Board was especially radical in, in really being strict and denying requested rental increases to landlords, uh, that, was, that corresponded with a, a spike in, built, in building abandonments, a spike in condo conversions in New York. Uh, rent controls control only the price of rental properties, not of owner-occupied properties. Uh, it's been a while since I've done it, but when I was at Fee in the late 90s and very early, uh, I was there from 1997 to 2001, and I would often, at least once a week, usually more, take the Metro North train down from Irvington to Grand Central Station and the and back up again. And that train path, uh, when, when, when you... Uh, when the train comes through the Bronx and then enters Manhattan, you can look out of the windows, look, you can look over at the Bronx, uh, and you can look over at upper, you know, the northeastern part of Manhattan, and you see these abandoned buildings, or these buildings with squatters living in them. They've been like this for years. I, I don't know if they're still like that. I think they still are, but I, I can't speak with absolute certainty because it's been a long time since I've taken that train ride. But I saw it a lot 
just 15, 18 years ago. Uh, and you have to wonder, well, what are these abandoned, why, why in New York City, which has to be one of the most, probably the most prime 22 square miles, Manhattan, of real estate in the world, why does it, and you know, right across this little river in the Bronx, why are these, why are these horrible buildings? And the, an the best answer is rent control. Rent control made it impossible for the owners to maintain the building, so they abandoned them. Uh, and these buildings were in a part of town where condo conversions were impractical. People weren't going to buy condos in that part of town. So the owners walked away from them. In some cases, uh, 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 in some cases, this, there's, it may have even been documented, but there's certainly a valid suspicion that a lot of these buildings were, were, were victims of arsonists hired by the owners. So rent control actually prompted the owners to torch their own buildings wow. for, to get the insurance money. Mm -hmm. right? And so here you have a policy <laughs> that, 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 makes, that makes a modern city like New York, parts of it look like Dresden after a firebombing. Uh, and if there were no rent control, I have no doubt. I mean, there are other problems in New York. I mean, the, the, the problems go well beyond rent control. It's not just rent control. But certainly without rent control, it would be a lot more profitable and attractive to some landlords to create low-cost rental units there. Um, and, and without, uh, but now with the fear uh, hanging over them due to the New York City Rent Control Board that they won't be able to adjust the rents in order to cover their costs, they're less, they, they, don't do, they don't create as many rental units as is necessary. You know, that reminds me... Um there's a story that Bert Folsom tells that when the railroads were being connected from the East Coast to the West Coast, Bert's that, great, yeah, yeah, that uh, it got so absurd in the way that the government was financing this that one of the parties started blowing up, um, taking dynamite, sticks yeah. of dynamite, and blowing up the railroad because that, of those yeah. unintended consequences. So we have people who are. They are incentivized to burn down their own property yeah. as a function. That's, that's incredible. So how do you respond to somebody that says, well, yes, you have these basic arguments, but they're elementary. There's a, when you, you get the more education you get, the more you realize that those, you've oversimplified and really the intelligentsia knows, as, as seems to be evidenced by the amount of people that support government intervention in intelligentsia and in academia, that really we do need these kind of policies because they're more complex than you've made it out to be. Yeah, well, look, obviously uh, the world is more complex than any theory, now, even graduate level theory makes it out to be. The whole point of theory is to, make, is to simplify parts of reality so you can focus on it. And I am uh, in no way, I in no way uh, think it is a mistake or, or lament the fact that there are higher level courses in economics. Uh, I myself do some higher level stuff, uh, but uh, if but uh, yes, the world's more complex than basic economic theory shows it up to be. But if that theory is valid, then it still has explanatory power. To say it's basic doesn't mean it's incorrect. It still is the starting point for our analyses, and and more often than not, that starting point takes you can get from that starting point to an an, an adequately full assessment of a policy without much more complexity. The, the problems 
the problems with policy today, it, it's not that, the problems do not come, stem from the fact that politicians and bureaucrats are taking basic economics too seriously. Uh, and therefore, we economists have to say, oh, no, no, look, the world's a lot more complex. The problem is the policymakers are ignoring the important features of reality that are highlighted by basic economics. And when you ignore those basic features of reality, all the curly cues and nuances and advances that you make on basic economic theory are irrelevant because they, they, these policies are ignoring basic facts. And so, yes, it, 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 this is, not, this is a, a, a dodge that a lot of people use. Oh, well, you, you, uh, uh, you free market people, you're focusing only on the simple you know, textbook uh, stuff, uh, textbook models. And, and the, and the re proper response is, yes, that, that's because the, most of the errors that are being made in public policy are errors that stem from the policymakers' ignorance of the basic truths taught by these models. Now, you say this is uh, ignorance on the part of the policymakers, and I think that... I'm a public choice guy. It's not just ignorance. A lot yeah, of it well, is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that would be a relatively uncontroversial statement to say that public policymakers maybe aren't the most educated about economics and maybe don't face the incentives to care really about economics. But it's more the latter, yeah. Why is it the case that so many economists seem to be mistaken about basic economics? Is it that they, they genuinely question. don't grasp the, these basics? Or is it that they've reached, as I've heard some people have told me, uh, you know, in graduate school, you reach an ability to grasp higher levels of abstraction. And yes. that's why they, they seem to be mistaken on the basics. I don't know that there's one simple answer. Uh, I'll throw out some hypotheses that I have. Uh, one is related to, the, to, 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 to what you just said. Um, by, the by the time you master PhD-level economics, particularly the way it's, it's taught today with very high-level mathematics, uh, that, that you're, you're, you're proud of that, and that's what you, that's what you think of as economics. And, and so there's perhaps a kind of psychological aversion to uh, just using simple supply and demand and simple word-based arguments uh, when you can use these higher-level math, math stuff, um, which does, I think, blind, because it's so complex, relatively complex, complex compared to basic theory, not complex compared to the world. The real world is always much more complex than the most complex economic theory you can name. Uh, so there's a reluctance to rely upon basic economics. And so it, it kind of, kind of it, it, I think for a lot of, the, a lot of these economists, um, it, they have to prove either to themselves, their friends, their colleagues, their students, that, that, that they're somehow smarter than uh, ordinary people. And, and one of the lovely things that I, one of the things I love about economics is that it's just consistently applied common sense. You, you can, you, you can, I can take someone who, an adult, or even a high school student who's never had an economics course, and I fancy that I can explain to that person in just a few minutes some really important economic concepts without ever talking about math or ever using any jargon. Um, but that seems to be, I think, to a lot of economists, professional economists, oh, that's, it, it can't be real science. I mean, if you can explain it in 10 minutes to a high school junior, that can't be real science. So you're doing something else other than economics. So you're, you're, you're simplifying it too much. I don't think it is simplifying it too much uh, in most cases. 
another hypothesis is 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 it's a screening hypothesis. So because math because math because well because economics now has become so formalized, um, both mathematical and mathematically and statistically, the two are different although they're related. Uh, there's a selection bias. It selects for people who can master uh, mathematical logic and statistical techniques, and those are not. Mastering those techniques, however impressive it is, and I do not, I admire people who can, who can master those. That's, that's, it is a, a, a genuinely impressive form of intelligence. But it, that is not the same thing as mastering economics. And you can, you can call the variables in your model that you, that you list P, you can call them prices, you can call the Q's quantities, you can call the W's wages, you can call the Y's incomes. That doesn't mean you're doing economics. Uh, you're doing math using, using these things. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing economics. Mm -hmm. And so there's a selection bias that people who now excel at the higher levels of economics are, are selected in, not because they have displayed any facility with basic economic reasoning and the ability to grasp basic economic concepts, it's because they're just good mathematicians and good statisticians. Is this also the case? Are we talking about high levels of economists that really don't grasp the basic concepts, or is this increasingly? I'm sorry to report, I see uh, high level. I see would strike me as more and more high level economists who seem not to understand basic economics. Now, I, I do believe that the typical economist, you, you go to the American Economic Association meeting, you just grab a random economist from the crowd. Uh, if you do that enough times, that person will have a better slightly better understanding of, of what I regard as good economics and basic economics uh, than the typical person on the street. Certainly than the typical, than is revealed by the typical politician's mm -hmm. uh, claims. But it's not good enough. I think, I think the typical economist is becoming less good as an economist. Uh, what I see happening, particularly over, I'm not sure when it started, it's not so much the mathemati mathematization of economics. Uh, but I think a, a kind of naive positivism is returning to economics. Can you explain the, a little yes, bit more? Yes, the yeah. level of statistical analysis that the, it has risen so greatly. I mean, the statistical tools that are available now are really impressive that allow economists to crunch data. And uh, um, the, I meet a lot of particularly young economists now, economists 40 years old and younger, uh, who... That what they, they think what economics is, is crunching data on da crunching data that most people regard as economically related. And so they don't bother thinking about the, the, the theories that hold these data together. In their view, what economics is just look, looking at the data sort of in an atheoretical way. This is why so many economists, young economists, will say, you know, there's a lot of evidence that raising the minimum wage doesn't cause unemployment because when we crunch the data, it's hard to find statistically significant effects of higher wage, of higher unemployment uh, when the wage rate rises. Well, that may be, but the real world's complex. There are all these things, all kinds of things going on. And they say, well, oh, oh, of course, well, we control for all of those things. And the, 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 the sound, the good economist understands that you can't control for all of those things. There are so many unseen variables that you just can't control for all of those things. Um, and there are, by the way, to return to the minimum wage for a minute, there are many, many other empirical studies, also high level, that do find the predicted negative employment effects. Uh, uh, but, but in in my view, I mean, conduct all these studies. That's fine. Do it. I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to look 
at all those studies. Yes, look at the real world uh, with data. It, it's important. Do it, do it all. But to, to conclude that because a handful, and it's all it is, really a relatively hand, small handful of studies, can't find statistically significant evidence that raising the minimum wage increases the rate of unemployment or increases the rate of unemployment among teenagers or unskilled workers, that that somehow uh, suggests that the law of demand, this idea that as the price of something rises, we buy less of it, doesn't apply to labor or to low-skilled workers, I think is foolish. But I believe that a lot of economists now have that view. If you can't see it in the data, it doesn't exist. Well, they would respond, well, you're just being unscientific. That, well, they do respond <laughs> that I'm being unscientific. Yeah. And not, not just me, by the way, but people who take my position. Right. They, they do, and, and I say, my response is, no, you're being unscientific. Right? <laughs> you're, you're being unscientific. Uh, part of science, science is not just, it's not just looking at data. Uh, the naive person thinks it's just looking at data. Part of science, science is this complex play. It, it, it involves human judgment. Uh, it involves always broader knowledge of the subject matter about which you're studying. It involves an understanding of history, an understanding of, of, of the philosophy of science, uh, basic theory in your discipline uh, of mathematics. Uh, and, and so this judgment gets better when you have these, this larger and wider uh, collection of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, and so if if you think it's just, not, not you personally, but if someone, and, and when there are these people, and they say, oh, uh, you're, you're, you're being unscientific uh, by, not, by saying that the minimum wage causes unemployment because we have some data that, we have some data that show that it doesn't. Well, the, the cheap response is, well, I have some data that show that it does. So, you know, who's being unscientific? We, we, got, we, got, we have to figure out some way to, to decide which of these two uh, different conclusions from the data are correct. The way a lot of these economists conduct the discussion is they say, well, they just want to sophisticate up their right. e e econometric techniques. And my, my argument is, uh, to get back to something I started to say a moment ago, part of being a good, a, a good scientist, a scientist with a small s, uh, not lab-coded, but a good in, in a way that economists are, in fact, I believe, scientists, uh, part of being a good scientist is understanding uh, uh, being able to identify certain laws of economic behavior and understand when and how they apply. Um, and to also um, make inferences from what you learn. If we, we're all agreed that if the price of paper towels goes up, people want to buy less, fewer paper towels. That if penalties for um, uh, 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 financial fraud go up, people are less likely to commit financial fraud. As taxes go up, people are less likely to uh, engage in the taxed activity. As the price of haircuts go up, people are less likely to get haircuts. If we understand all this, uh, well, it's scientific to say, okay, well, we, we, we've identified a law here. That law should also apply to low-skilled workers. And if you say it doesn't, you need to give me a really good reason for why it doesn't apply. So let me challenge you on that. Is you say we've identified these laws? Is that uh, is that identification something that you arrive at through an analysis of data, or is this just pure theorizing? So, is there any any? Uh, this is two questions, I suppose. Is there any data that would convince you otherwise? 
And two, is there any lack of data that would convince you otherwise? It depends. It, it, well, you're asking, you're asking a lot of questions there, and they're, <laughs> they're, and they're good questions. And, 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 and in, a, in a way, I'm going to punt because it, I, I don't want to dive down the, the, the black hole of methodology. Because <laughs> I, I know from a lot of experience that you, you dive down that hole, you never come out. Right. And this is not, I'm sure your listeners don't want to. Don't want I was to hear, already, I've already talked to a few people about it, so yeah. we don't have to go into great. Right. I mean, you know, so you had, you know, Ludwig von Mises had an extreme view that, you know, all economic, uh, uh, you know, knowledge of the laws is, 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 is a priori. We can deduce them just through reasoning. Although even Mises wasn't so naive as to say we don't learn anything from observing the real world. That's an that's a, 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 a unjust characterization of his view. Uh, I'm not quite the a priorist that Mises was, but. So I, I think we, un, we, we understand the laws of economics through what we know from our human experience, from observing the, uh, in, in, in a theoretically constrained way, like using supply and demand analysis, for example, observing the world using that, and we ask ourselves, does this, does this analysis help us better understand the world over here? Oh, yes, it does. How about over here? Oh, yes, it does. Well, that says that this analysis has a lot of explanatory power. And the more explanatory power it has, uh, then w when, it's, when, when you use it to understand different parts of reality, uh, then there, there becomes an increasingly strong reason to believe that it continues to have that explanatory power when, it's, when you apply it to this other part of reality, particularly if there's no obvious reason why it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. right? So when you, when you ask, is there any data that would convince me otherwise? This is what I, this is what I meant when I said it depends on the question. Uh, you know, obviously... Yes. I mean, if, if study after study after study show that raising the minimum wage, no matter how high, right, or, or forget about no matter how if raising the minimum wage in some, you know, in some meaningful amount, right, um, and studied over the effects over, over long periods, uh, and done really, really well by the best uh, econometricians and economists, and they never find any unemployment effects, then at some point I would have to say, there's something about the market for low-skilled worker, workers that makes the law of demand there non-operative. What is that something? Is it uh, monopsony power of, of, of employers? Is it uh, some unseen change in the nature of the job? Which, by the way, if that were the case, then the theory would still hold. It would just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but even but but but, e but even then, uh, I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't I wouldn't generalize from that to okay. Well, the law of demand uh, must not be a general enough principle that we can use it to, to theorize about the real world. Um, but practically speaking, in the case of the minimum wage, again, the the majority of studies still find a negative employment effect. Um, uh, and, and so. If you're going to use purely statistical or data-based empirical arguments to suggest that a foundational principle of a science doesn't apply, you need overwhelming evidence. You don't need just a few studies. Uh, and and those, those, that evidence has to be almost unanimous to, 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 to convince me. Startling propositions require startling amounts of evidence to back them up. Um, I was talking to uh, my friend George Selgin yesterday on another topic. We were talking on the phone, and, this, and, and we were joking, and, and, and George said, well, you know, uh, 
someone might claim that 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 water runs runs uphill you know and if someone has a study that said water runs uphill no one would start thinking well maybe maybe the law of gravity doesn't apply to water and i remember thinking when my son who's now 18 almost 19 when my son was a young boy i remember going to some of these water parks and uh, i actually did see water running uphill at one of them but i didn't look at that and say oh my gosh yeah maybe maybe gravity doesn't apply uh, to water or maybe gravity doesn't apply to water at this water park um you know the the the, the uh, so 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 doing good economics and it's not satisfying to a lot of people because there's no formula for it. Uh, but being a good economist ultimately is a matter of judgment and wisdom. And I just know it when I see it. Uh, and I think other good economists know it when they see it. And I know bad economics when I see it. Mm-hmm. I can't prove it. You know, I, if if I think you know this professor X's economics is lousy. There's no formula I can say to, to prove it. I just give arguments to other people and let other people judge whether or not they think my arguments are better than Professor X's arguments. But there's no, there's no escape. I mean, science is a human endeavor. I'm very much influenced by Deirdre McCloskey, uh, uh, particularly in this matter. Science is a human endeavor. And human beings, uh, we have certain ways of thinking uh, that are just part of being human. We, 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 we don't have access to, uh, uh, you know, capital T truth that's just given to us whole and pure uh, without any intervention of, you know, our own uh, distortions of thought and prejudices and biases, and we just don't have it. And so we have to do our best to use our judgment and our wisdom. Uh, And I believe that supply and demand analysis, basic economics, is a huge benefit, is a, a huge it's usually a valuable tool for improving our wisdom and our judgment, and a usually valuable tool for someone with good wisdom and judgment to make statements about reality, to help themselves and to help others better understand reality. Um, I like Hayek's distinction between making specific predictions and making pattern predictions. I don't think it's the case in the social sciences that we can make many specific predictions. It's just, you know, about the real world. Uh, we can make if-then predictions. I, I predict that if the minimum wage goes up, uh, then there will be uh, fewer job opportunities or worse job opportunities for low-skilled workers. Uh, that's different than saying if the minimum wage rises, there will be tomorrow or will be next year right. fewer, fewer jobs. A lot of other things can happen. I mean, uh, that, 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 that overwhelm that particular... Uh, effect. That doesn't mean that the science, that doesn't mean that the, the basic economics is wrong. It just means other things happen. And, uh, I believe that, a, in, unfortunately, an increasingly large number of economists, particularly young economists, have poor judgment. They just have poor judgment about what matters. They have poor judgment about what data mean. They don't, they, they, they naively don't ask, well, where did these data come from? Why do we classify things in this way rather than that way? What, what, why should we believe that a study that doesn't statistically conclude that higher wages cause unemployment, why should we let that study or this, that, a handful of similar studies lead us to believe that the law of demand doesn't apply to the market for low-skilled workers? It's just poor judgment. But it's poor judgment that gets to mask itself in uh, a, a a, a sort of, you know, a dime store costume of science. Well, and that's kind of the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because this phenomena of 
perhaps young students or uh, increasingly popular, not only economists, but popular intellectuals, from my perspective, outside of academia, seem to lack this common sense. They seem to lack this sensible judgment, and, and especially in the soft sciences, when you're not just talking about economics, but or like in the humanities, good heavens. I wonder if you have a, a kind of explanation for that, because I think we're starting to see um, a group of people of which I am part that are really interested in ideas and very turned off by academia, mm-hmm. largely because people seem a bit too full of themselves and not actually interested in the accuracy, critical, conceptual accuracy of their ideas. Oh, so much of what goes on in academia, particularly in the social sciences and the humanities, is just pure peacockery. Exactly uh, the or P. Henry. Um, I don't want to be sexist. Uh, uh, there's a lot of show off in, econom- in, in economics, I know. Look at the jargon economists use, uh, the way their papers are structured. And, uh, you know, the, the, a, a lot of, a, I can speak for economics mostly, obviously, that's my discipline. A lot of the math that occurs, it appears in top-level journals, or any journal for that matter in economics, a lot of it is just window dressing. It's designed to say, look, look, look what I can do. Uh, so you got to take me seriously because I've done all this fancy math. Uh, and then you read the paper, and it often makes a point, if it's valid at all uh, or relevant at all, uh, it's a point that could have been made with either no or much less math. Do you think that uh, the, this would be something a presumptuous conclusion? It's is something that I believe, but I wonder what you think about it. That it is entirely uh, not only plausible, but realistic to think that somebody with access to the internet in a matter of a month, if they know where to research and they're good skeptical people that can listen to both sides of the argument, can come to more sound and accurate conclusions about economics than even people who are pursuing their PhDs. Certainly possible. They have to know where to look. Right. Uh, you know, the risk is they can also come to some bizarre conclusion. But I think the risk, I think the internet here actually makes things better because the risk of coming to a bad conclusion in economics is sort of natural. I think if you don't, again, economics isn't hard, it isn't difficult. But if you, if you don't learn supply and demand, unintended consequences, that scarcity is unavoidable, it's not, it, it, it's not an artifact of reality that we can get rid of. Uh, I, I, a lot of people just sort of naturally become bad economists. Uh, they, just, they just don't have the, they, they're, not, they're not triggered to think, to, to ask the basic, simple questions that economists ask. And once you're triggered to think, those, to ask those questions, then you really, it's hard, I, I think it's hard to imagine not asking those questions. Right. So, okay, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna raise you, you're gonna raise that 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 wage. Where's it gonna come? Where's the pay gonna come from? And once once you start down that road, well, then then it's it's natural. Oh, yeah, we gotta figure out where the pay is gonna come from. Well, it's gonna it's gonna come from higher prices. Well, won't the higher prices discourage consumption? Uh, yeah. Well, won't then the less production mean the demand demand for fewer workers? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. So this is I mean, this, so while it's easy to I think, uh, quickly become a comp- competent at thinking like a good economist. Right. Um, it's not natural. Uh, the internet probably increases the chances of it becoming natural. So while the internet also expands the opportunity to stumble upon a lot of real nonsense, 
I think the non, I think the, the because the natural state of the human mind is economically nonsensical anyway. Uh, uh, the the bad things on the internet don't really have that much of an effect. They just they just reinforce what people naturally think. But by allowing people to to find uh, explanations, you know, videos, or short blog posts, or op-eds, or you know, even chapters of textbooks, uh, it enhances the ability to, to people to learn economics. I I don't have any evidence that that's happening. Uh, I'd like to think it is. Uh, I can say that the public discussion today. Uh, about public policy is, is, seems to me a lot worse than it was when I first got into economics. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some exceptions. I mean, the, the, the big, and I think this is important, the big exception is price controls. When I got into economics, price controls were still accepted in the United States. Um, today, except for mi minimum wage and rent control in some cities, price controls are pretty much off the board. And that's a good thing. Uh, uh, but and I don't, I, I, maybe it's a selection bias, maybe it's just my memory failing. But the, the overall understanding today that's evinced by the public discussions that, I'm, that I see seems to be just worse about economics. You remember, the New York Times famously in 1987, that's that long ago, at least not to me, uh, argued for a zero minimum wage. They basically argued for eliminating minimum wage. The New York Times. Now the New York wow. Times is calling for more than doubling the minimum wage, the national minimum wage. Um, trade, uh, well, well, while, while ordinary men and people in the street have always been protectionists, mostly. Um, elites were almost all in favor of free trade back in the 80s. And we see I, almost daily that seems to be going away. You had, a, you had a handful of people who were bemoaning globalization and bemoaning the rise of Japan. Uh, but... but uh, you know, even Paul Krugman now is 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 giving aid and comfort to protectionists. So, so last thing on this, um, in my own experience, and given that I, as we talked about before, I had a, a job at Fee where I got to go around and talk to a lot of students mm -hmm. and professors who were specifically interested in what you might call sound economics. Yeah. They're familiar with the works of Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, um, where if you read those, you kind of you grasp. The economic way of thinking you grasp this idea like you mentioned Bastiat of the seen and the unseen yeah like that is central and once you get it you can't not get it you can't not get it yeah so so this is a perhaps a more challenging question would you say that if somebody sincerely grasps those basic concepts the seen and the unseen for example that they are going to have a clearer footing to understand the world around them in an economic way than a, I, would, I, would, I can't possibly say the majority of professional economists, but it sure seems like um, the conversation in the general public yes. quotes economists. Uh, they, they have all this evidence of all these economists that believe these things that get the basics wrong. I think that if an intelligent person who's never had an economics class reads Bastiat's essay, What is Seen and What is Unseen?, reads his Petition of the Candlemakers, reads Leonard Reed's I Pencil, maybe reads Milton Friedman's Free to Choose or uh, uh, Capitalism and Freedom, um, maybe reads an essay or two by Julian Simon, you know, a handful of small things, but, but, but read just a handful of things that are accessible to an intelligent person without ever having taken an economics course. Then that intelligent person if he or she has any kind of wisdom at all and any kind of good judgment, 
at all. Uh, I believe we'll know what I regard as sound economics. We'll, we'll, we'll know more sound economics than, is, than seems to be known by a large number of, I'm not saying a majority, but a large number, a distressingly large number of professional economists. Relatedly, uh, a, that same person, the same lay person, the non-economist who reads these things, will by doing so have enough understanding of economics to assess public policy proposals and to participate intelligently in public policy debates about economic matters that make that person as expert in these matters as even the best, as, as all but the very best economists. Because again, the, the public policy proposal, public policy debates, we, we, we are not, these, are not, these issues do not involve uh, nuances in economic theory. These, are, these all turn on misunderstandings of very, very basic facts. The, the typical public policy debate is between someone who thinks that scarcity doesn't exist or forgets that scarcity exists and someone who insists that it does exist. Uh, uh, the typical public policy debate on trade uh, it, it, uh, is between someone who simply doesn't know the definition of a trade deficit and someone who does. Right? And so not knowing the definition of a trade deficit, you can imagine it being whatever you want, sounds bad, so well, therefore it must be bad. And so what public policy debate needs much more of is an understanding of basic economics. Economists should be leading the way in that. I don't see them doing so. I don't see them doing so as much as I'd like them to do so. I say them because I'm almost speaking about them as if they're a different field than me. I increasingly feel that way. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for sitting down and talking with me. This has been great. It's my pleasure. All right, so that was my interview with Professor Donald Boudreaux of George Mason University. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Check out the show notes page this week, steve-patterson.com slash 19, and I'll have some more resources for you guys to learn about basic economics if that's something that you're interested in. And make sure to tune in next week where I'm doing a interview breakdown of my conversation with a Stanford professor about democracy. I have lots and lots to say on that topic, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. All right, have a great week.